This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you think that God wants you to have pleasure with your partner? That men aren't complaining of erectile dysfunction from low libido. They're complaining of low libido from erectile dysfunction. We do know that maintaining an overall healthy diet and a regular exercise regimen, that will actually boost libido, gives them the rest of that confidence to live a really great sex life. People think that they're like the only person who doesn't have this wonderful sex life and it's not like Hollywood and all this stuff. And I'm like, actually, I see this all the time and it is totally normal. Sex is a gift from God between a man and a woman, and it's a beautiful thing. It's not something just for procreation. Dear young married couple, you're in a busy season of your life. You're probably working and involved in ministry. On top of that, you might even be parents or students. You're maxed, but you really want to stay connected in your marriage. And that's why we're bringing this podcast to you. I'm Adam King. And I'm Carissa King. And we work with busy couples just like you in our counseling office here in Sacramento, California. We also work with couples all over the world through online counseling. And our couples are really just looking for ways to communicate with each other more effectively. Some of them are looking to heal from a breach in trust or find direction in fulfilling the purpose that God has for them. So come and join us as we have a conversation. We'll talk with therapists, authors, pastors, and other couples who will pour into us giving us tools to become more intimately connected, get adventurous, and find purpose. Welcome to the Dear Young Married Couple podcast. We're going to be talking about an important, um, but yet not talked about aspect of marriage, and it's our sexual health. So we're going to be taking a medical look at arousal disorders and sexual dysfunction. And before we introduce our awesome guests, uh, we wanted to give a shout out to somebody who left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and that is RM2506. They said, I wish I had this when I was a newlywed. Awesome for us old people too. So thank you so much, RM2506. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) We uh, often have uh, couples who are not so young, but young at heart and, you know, share that they're part of the DYMC fam too. And we love it. Love it. Um, so here is the disclaimer like last week, (laughs) cause we are going to be talking with two, um, physicians or nurse practitioners talking with two nurse practitioners and we will be talking about anatomical parts quite openly. Mm -hmm. So if that is something that you don't want your whole family hearing, then go ahead and put some headphones on. Yeah. I mean, 
There's a healthy amount of anatomical sure. parts that need to be discussed with kids, but... But this is just your heads up, okay? Yeah, depending on what you want. <laughs> Disclaimer, there you go. Okay, so uh, we want to introduce our guests. They are phenomenal um, in their field, and they're also Christians, and so we are just privileged to have them on the podcast today. So first we have Kim Mathis, and Kim is a women's health nurse practitioner, and um, she has worked in urogynecology, gynecology, and reproductive medicine and infertility. And she was a labor and delivery nurse for many years um, and has a master's of science in nursing. And so we're thankful to have her on board. Yes. And Kim um, also worked alongside uh, Meredith in labor and delivery for almost a decade. Um, and Meredith is our other guest, Meredith McWhorter. And she's a family nurse practitioner, and she's currently working in urology. So we had a unique um, approach with these ladies. Um, we have Kim mainly speaking to the women's side of things when it comes to sexual dysfunction and arousal disorders, and then Meredith speaking to um, the man's side of things when it comes to the same thing. So that should give us all something to listen to. And yes. so listen up. I think you'll learn something. I'm really looking forward to the show. So welcome, Meredith and Kim, to the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's a privilege um, that you guys are lending your expertise to us and our tribe. We are in to learn a lot today, that's yes. for sure. And um, so we have lots of good questions for you. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Bring it on. We'll try our best. Yeah. <laughs> So um, let's start off, just uh, share a little bit with us about, um, before we dive into specific arousal or desire disorders, um, what are some of the most common types of disorders that you see in your practices? So maybe we'll start with you, Kim. Um, you work with women primarily. Yes. So um, I used to work in urogynecology, and so I worked a lot with um, bladder problems and gynecology um, issues with women. Um, not as much OB, but Meredith and I used to work as labor and delivery nurses for like nine years together. So right we on. do have some OB background, um, in that. And then, um, I just recently switched to infertility. So mm -hmm. I also mm. deal with, um, that aspect with women. So kind of a comprehensive amount of information. Um, okay. Right that on. I cover with patients. So. All right. Wow. Great. And then for you, Meredith, um, you're working in urology. Can you share a little bit more about what you tend to see in your practice? Yeah. So, and kind of like Kim did, I went into urology because I tend to crave a specialty um, where I can make somebody comfortable in a vulnerable or uncomfortable situation. So mm. um, we deal a lot with, of course, prostate cancer and kidney cancer, but a lot of what we deal with too is male sexual dysfunction. We see mm -hmm. a lot of erectile dysfunction for um, men of all ages, to be honest. We see mm -hmm. low libido, um, people who want to come in and um, start testosterone therapy. Mm -hmm. um, we see a little bit of Peroni's disease, which I won't get into too much, but uh, it's kind of a, an assortment of things. Okay. All right. So you see a lot of different things. So I guess maybe be helpful. I think most people probably already know, but what are we talking about when we say sexual dysfunction and desire? Like, 
you know, what to you does that mean? So um, I used to work um, dealing with women whenever they come in for their annuals, doing their PAPs, things like that. And they would come in and I would ask them like, how is it going with your sex life? Any problems, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes they would kind of tense up and not want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then I started figuring out, oh my gosh, this is a way larger problem than I realized when I was in school. Mm-hmm. So um, I started doing a bunch of stuff um, for continuing education and learning how to like ask questions to women um, mm-hmm. and for open ended and um, because it's so such a sensitive subject. Um, sure. And then I would also, I saw it a lot in postmenopausal women, which was kind of more normal, you know, um, sexual dysfunction happens um, in women who are age 40 and higher, um, okay. mostly because of just a decline in health. But then mm-hmm. I started noticing that there were a lot of younger women or perimenopausal women, um, and perimenopause kind of happens about 10 years prior, up to 10 okay. years prior to menopause, average age of menopause is 51. So okay. you have a long period of time mm-hmm. where women start having some of these symptoms. And then I would also see issues with sexual dysfunction right after a woman had a child. So after childbirth or with breastfeeding, Mm -hmm. there are so many hormonal changes and things like that. So um, the women would be like, I'm really having a problem with, you know, my relationship or, you know, this is concerning maybe to my husband, but not to me, but it's causing problems with our marriage, Mm -hmm. things like that. So um, I had to start working really hard on, um, finding all of this information out that I didn't learn in school. It's not covered mm. as well in the women's health programs. So I had to do a lot more um, continuing education and conferences yeah. and stuff on these, this subject. So I bet. Yeah. And you probably just learned a lot from your patients, you know, and their experiences and then having to go research and attend another continuing ed class for that. Exactly. And yeah. I would think that's a pretty big flag for you of like, okay, so this is something we need to look into because that's a big part of health, whether it be a, a woman or a man's health. It's mm-hmm. very important. Yeah. I think the biggest part too is like Kim, you, like you said, the biggest part is asking about it too. Mm-hmm. Even if somebody's coming in just for a routine follow-up or just an initial evaluation for something else, there's very few people who are going to bring it up themselves. Certainly Mm -hmm. there's going to be more men bring it up than women are. So Mm -hmm. it's just important to ask about it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So from Meredith, from your perspective um, on the man side, what do you see um, primarily in terms of arousal desire disorders um, and maybe even incorporating like pain disorders? What do you tend to see the most of when it comes to sexual dysfunction? It's mostly erect dysfunction um, because interestingly, more so that that men aren't complaining of uh, erectile dysfunction from low libido. They're complaining of ere- uh, low libido from erectile dysfunction. Mm, can you talk about the so, distinction? Yeah. So um, if a man has difficulty achieving or maintaining an erection, erectile dysfunction, uh-huh. um, then oftentimes they're, of course, going to have some performance anxiety. They, um, with the causes of erectile dysfunction, it may be due to um, a problem with their spouse or maybe some work stress, which is in, in cause 
are going to cause some low libido and them just not having much interest or desire and even wanting to have intercourse or right. any type of intimacy for that matter. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Um, how often, Kim, on your side, are you seeing, um, and I, I know how often is a hard, hard term, like to a question to answer, but um, talk to us about what you see maybe when women come in with um, arousal <laughs> disorders. They're just not interested in sex. Is it often due to pain or is it due to something else? It depends. That's a loaded question. But the number one um, or most prevalent female sexual health problem is hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So um, that's the research says about 10% of women um, experience this in their lifetime. Um, I think that I saw it probably a little bit more. Um, I don't know if it was just the population of the patients that were coming in. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked in a little bit more of a specialty clinic, so it might've been that, but um, I would see that a lot. They would just be completely exhausted. Um, there might've been situational issues, but then I also saw a lot of the pain disorders. Um, there's something called vaginismus and there's another, um, something just called dyspareunia. Those are two big Mm -hmm. words that mean, um, vaginismus is a tightening of the muscle. And so, um, on penetration with intercourse, like they, or it could be with a tampon or even whenever you're trying to do a pap and a speculum is going in, those muscles will involuntarily just contract Mm. and it causes so much pain that, you know, it's, there's a ton of anxiety that is um, associated with it. So sometimes it's related um, to that. Sometimes they have pain because they have vaginal atrophy, which means that they don't have enough estrogen um, inside of the vagina. And so, Mm -hmm have issues um, with pain superficially again whenever um, there's an entrance at the vaginal opening mm-hmm. and so they need additional therapies for that so it kind of depends um, there's a variety and it depends on the age of the woman and also kind of what her relationship status is like or if she has physiologic stressors um, It also depends if she has anxiety, depression issues, because SSRIs, um, which is a class of medication, it's the most common um, for depression and anxiety. Um, It's a medication, you've probably heard of them like Zoloft, Paxil, Mm -hmm. Prozac, Alexa, Lexapro, those kind of meds. They are widely known to cause tons of erect, I mean, um, sexual dysfunction. Yeah. Erectile dysfunction as well. So Mm -hmm. yes. Um, so sometimes it's a medication that the patient is on. Um, and we have to kind of go through that. I mean, it can be problems, um, with high blood pressure, antihypertensive medicine, um, diuretics, there are Mm -hmm. hormone meds that will do that. Um, there's even over the counter stuff that you wouldn't really think about, like, um, reflux medicine, like Mm. the GERD that you hear about can actually lower it. And there are certain even birth control pills that can lower sex drive. Mm-hmm. Um, so Yaz, Yasmin, um, some of the ones that have a certain progesterone in them called drospirinone. And so women will have to switch off of a birth control pill to like an IUD um, instead or a different form of birth control. So wow. that you have to kind of figure out in the history what's going on with them. Hmm. Oh. So I was going to ask you guys, a question. I was like, that's not very 
<laughs> right to do that here. <laughs> okay. So what would y'all <laughs> yes. there you go. get it get it right. Um what would you consider a, a low sex drive? Um yeah, I think it's it really so the definition um of hypoactive sexual desire disorder or HSDD, that's a little bit easier acronym, but you have to have had a good desire first and then at least six months uh, of not having that desire anymore. Mm-hmm. So it has to be one of two things, either a lack of motivation for the sexual activity, or you may not want to initiate or participate in the sexual activity. So you might avoid a situation that would lead to sexual intercourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not due to pain. So um, separated out from a pain disorder. Okay. Um, but it has to be distressing to the patient if they don't care, then they don't qualify, you know, to be. Well, what, <laughs> if what if their spouse does? Right. Cause that's like, what we get a lot. I care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then they don't have the disorder and they probably should go to counseling with you guys. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All so, right. Meredith, so, what, what would you say I, on that? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. It's very subjective um, with what, low libido is from person to person, from man to woman, from Mm -hmm. marriage to marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like Kim was saying, if it's impacting or the intimacy, then of course there's a problem there. Um, I think for women, there's more of a a definition for the disorders, but um, low libido for men is is more, it's just very subjective. Mm -hmm. So we can't say like, okay, if you don't want sex two times a week, then you have low sex drive. It's more like, okay. So, so I guess what I was hearing you guys say, or y'all say <laughs> is, is that like, if you have, let's say, I don't know, you, you want sex two times a week, let's say, and then, and then it almost just flat lines after that. Like there's, there's no really interest then that would be a, a very big change in your pattern. And so if there's a change in your right. pattern, then that's when we need yeah. to start considering, okay, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I think that leads into one of the big components that causes dysfunction. And honestly, okay. for both men and women, and uh-huh. uh, one of the components that impacts this is a psychogenic factor. Okay. And that uh-huh. is directly related to, um, stress, relationship issues, whether there's an underlying diagnosis of depression or anxiety, um, and anything psychogenic in nature can then cause performance anxiety, lack of desire, psychogenic. You're using huge words here. So (laughs) I I would think psycho, (laughs) which means your mind, genic or Genesis where it's coming from. So something that's happening that's psychological psychological. emotionally or psychologically Mm -hmm. exactly Exactly. even like um like feelings of guilt like if they've had something Mm -hmm. going on in the past or like body image concerns like obesity is linked to that women Mm -hmm. have a hard time or even i would see it with um patients who are post mastectomy because they've had breast cancer Mm -hmm. you know and so their sexuality was linked a little bit to that um Sometimes it's, you know, they're concerned because they don't feel like they're a good sexual performer or they don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're Mm -hmm. a virgin going into this. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's, you know, a lot of the problem too, that some people have at the very beginning, but sure. whenever it's a low desire, um, typically you're going to have the desire was high at the beginning, mm. then it goes down and mm. they are upset about it and they want it to go back to how it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what do you do then when it's a, the, the different scenario, maybe where someone comes to you and says, I've never been interested in sexual activity, um, but they want to, they, they wish their libido was higher, um, but they just have never had that, you know, uh, quote unquote, normal sex drive. Where do you start with them? So there's something called a sexual aversion disorder. It's incredibly rare where people okay. are like panicked over sex. Um, I personally have not seen that in my practice. I know that people who deal in sexual health medicine um, kind of work with people on that. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is going to be psychological, a lot of education, um, kind of explaining what the normal bodily functions are. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they're fearful about sex. They just don't understand it. Maybe it's taboo. Maybe it's something that um, culturally they didn't, um, it was considered maybe against their cultural norms. It's only mm -hmm. for reproduction, not for pleasure. So they're having to figure out those things. Mm -hmm. um, Preach. So, yeah. so <laughs> sex therapist, I know you yeah. guys had a really awesome sex therapist on the podcast, actually. She was yeah. great. But they can help um, patients kind of get through that as well. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, it also depends on if, if it's related to a pain. Like, are they not interested in intercourse because it, they were never able to insert a tampon, you know, mm -hmm. so they're really concerned that it's going to be painful for them. Mm -hmm. So then you can start working with them like you would a vaginismus patient, the ones who can't handle the tampon insertions. Mm -hmm. You can kind of work with them and say, you know, we have dilators that can be used um, mm -hmm. that are gradual, maybe 10 to 15 minutes a night and you gradually okay. go up in size, things like that. Can you kind of uh, slow down yeah, for those yeah, who have never, that's, that's probably a big, yeah. One. For those who have never heard about that, because people are starting to listen to this and think treatment, right? Like what does treatment look like? So mm -hmm. if you were to tell somebody, okay, well, I think we can start with a dilator. How do you explain this to them so that they understand? That what just it sounds crazy painful. Yeah. <laughs> So there, yeah, there are a lot of different kinds. Um, so I, I think the people who work in sexual medicine, they give like lots of options and stuff. We would, we just had a standard kit at our office, mm -hmm. but, um, it's a device that is placed basically at the vaginal opening, which is called mm -hmm. the introitus. So you place it in there, um, and just let it sit for 10 or 15 minutes as much as you could handle mm -hmm. and then just try to see if your muscles will relax around that mm -hmm. and see how long it can stay. And then 10, 15 minutes later, you're done for the day. And then you might do it again a few times a week mm -hmm. with that same amount, um, the same size. And then it gradually, you can move up a size. So it almost looks like a candlestick. Mm -hmm. But then they have like fancy ones that look more like anatomically correct. <laughs> so, oh, gotcha. Um, <laughs> gotcha. So, but I, I've heard of people even using, I, I've not recommended this to patients, but using like a candlestick with like wrapped, you know, wrapped in some. Oh my um, goodness. 
paper or whatever. So I don't recommend that, but I'm saying it's going to be similar to that where it gets larger and larger okay. to accommodate and kind of train your muscles to be able to handle that. Mm-hmm. So, um, And so for those who are listening and, and kind of wondering, uh, this is not in the same category as a sex toy, right? This is, this is a medically correct. guided tool to help you engage with your spouse in a way that's pleasing to you both. Correct. Exactly. We also use it for patients who have anatomical concerns where their vagina, um, like they have a congenital, like a birth um, anomaly where the vagina is not long enough to accommodate the spouse. And so you, it goes through a period of stretching Mm. with the same dilators that it would be used the same way to try to help. Cause you can imagine how, terrible that is for someone going into the situation and realizing, oh my gosh, like I'm not enough. God didn't make Mm -hmm. my body right. You know, Mm -hmm. they're going through a ton of things. So they're already mortified coming into the office to talk to us about this. Um, So we have to be really sensitive with them, but um, make sure that they realize this, this is okay. We see patients with this. Mm -hmm. You're not the first person this has ever happened with, you know, take it slow, things like that. We find we have to do the same thing with people coming to counseling. Right. Because in, in, in both ways, you know, like, are we doing things wrong? I'm not enough. You know, like Mm -hmm. why weren't we enough because we couldn't fix our own problems. And so, yeah, there is a, there is a big stigma, right. Of probably having to go to you to help fix or, you know, like, fix this sort of thing or help Mm. them work through it. That's, but there's probably so much satisfaction in seeing people, you know, heal from this sort of thing too. Absolutely. Patients are so grateful. And I think it is very important. I will say um, if you have a provider that you're going to see and you are not comfortable discussing this kind of stuff, you probably need to find another provider So if you feel comfortable enough with the provider to say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Can you help me? Mm. Provider's going to help you. We're trained to do these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And if the provider is not, um, you know, someone you trust, switch providers. You know, I mean, a lot of a lot of patients will actually drive an hour or more to go back to their old provider because Mm -hmm. they felt the most comfortable with them, you know, to go to their exams and because it's such a sensitive area. So, yeah. um, yeah, that's good. Um, Meredith, we're, we're talking kind of on the female side of things for treatment options. Mm-hmm. Can you continue down yeah. that list? Maybe on the male side, um, what are some of the approaches you take in treating erectile dysfunction and, or other, you know, desire arousal disorders for men? Yeah. So, um, first of all, erectile dysfunction, I know we talked about the subjective definition of it for, men, but um, it's really the more official definition is the inability to achieve or maintain an erection that's adequate for intercourse. So um, there are many different treatment options and the mainstay of treatment or the first line treatment are the oral medications that um, many people probably have heard of. That's Mm -hmm. your Cialis or Viagra or Stendra that have been on the market for a long time and for a long time were extraordinarily expensive. Mm. Um, the good news is they're all generic now. Okay. Um, we usually go with Cialis first just because it stays in the system for 
little bit longer. Um, mm-hmm. It can stay in for about 36 hours or so. That doesn't mean that the man is going to have a 36 hour long erection. It just makes it easier to achieve an erection during that time frame. Okay. The, um, the Viagra takes a little spontaneity out of things. That would need to be taken about an hour before uh, planned intercourse. It does need to be taken on, on an empty um, mm-hmm. so we, we use the oral medications first, and then say a man has tried, you know, one, two different ones, and they're just really, maybe they're getting a partial erection, but it's not adequate penetration. Then we into, um, it's called a vacuum erection device, mm-hmm. which is exactly what you're thinking. It's a pump that, um, goes around the penis and sits at the base of and it manually um, brings the blood into the penis. Wow. So a lot of times if somebody has a partial response to the oral medication, um, but not quite all the way, then we add on um, the vacuum erection device. And okay. it is a medical device too that insurance can cover. Okay. Um, and the manual stimulation in combination with the medical therapy is very, very effective. Wow. And of course, if those don't, um, and that is injection therapy, which seems very daunting to most men at first, but it's extremely effective. And um, a teeny tiny needle, not that that makes it any uh, more appealing <laughs> to inject yourself in it. It's a very needle that you inject medication into the shaft of the penis you get an erection within about 10 minutes. Um, and a lot of men have this with it, like I said. So oh, you cut out, what did you say? Three, a lot of, a lot of men, what? A lot of men have great success with that too. Okay. Usually if nothing else works, then the injections definitely going to work. Okay. Um, Interesting. And then if those three options don't work, the final step would be, um, a penile prosthesis, and that's um, basically an artificial penis. So that is a surgical intervention. Um, it can be a very painful recovery. So that's why it's kept on. Um, wow. Okay. Last case or last yeah. option. I haven't even heard uh, of but that we before. Do have people yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are a couple different types of prosthetic devices. Um, there's one that's used more commonly and it's basic, um, like a, a teeny tiny little, uh, dime sized little that's in the base of the scrotum and you just pump it up and squeeze it. And then, uh, when you're done, just press another button that deflates. Oh, wow. Um, and I, yeah, it's very interesting. So uh, we see that every now and then. Yeah, so that is interesting. Um, which it made me think of the question on the female side, Kim. Um, when so by the time people hear this episode, they will have heard an episode already um, of a couple sharing their story of going from sexual disconnection to a healthy sex life, and it involved uh, the woman after she had her first baby. The OB went in and said. Uh, you have a ton of extra tissue. Has this been causing you pain when you have sex? And she's like, yes. And she's like, well, I can take that out. Um, and so I don't know if you call that surgical or procedural, but um, how often are on the female side, are you using a procedure or surgery for treatment? 
We'll be right back to the interview, but first we wanted to share something that we are really excited about. So you know we all have those times where we don't feel super connected to our spouse and we really don't know what conversations to have to get us to that connected place. And then on top of that, we're so busy that we don't prioritize those conversations. And that's why we created the monthly live date night. And monthly live date night is every month on a Friday night for 90 minutes, 60 minutes. It, we focus on a topic that uh, you guys pick and then 30 minutes we do a Q&A and it's live where we're all together asking questions and giving answers on topics related to your marriage, your intimacy. And we share tools. Uh, we have handouts that we call homework because we want you to be there to listen and to soak in, but we really want you to take action in your marriage too. So come join us live for the next monthly live date night. Check the link in the show notes for dates and details. All right, back to the interview. That's pretty rare, honestly. Um, okay. Most of the problems with painful intercourse is going to be um, due to inadequate lubrication. So um, it's either problems with the tissue or they haven't been aroused enough maybe by their partner. Mm -hmm. um, so, but usually, usually it's a lubrication issue. Um, we tell patients to use either Astroglide or um, there's something called good, clean love that you can use. It's an organic um, mm -hmm. um, lubricant. And it's also, it's available, I think, at like Whole Foods, things like that. Um, okay. But it's also okay for fertility. Um, so mm -hmm. sometimes that's the issue. Um, if it's more of a deep issue um, where the pain is not at the entry, but maybe deeper in, um, then we would probably do an ultrasound and a vaginal exam, things like that, thinking, mm -hmm. Maybe it's fibroids or endometriosis, or maybe they have a big ovarian cyst going on. Maybe it's mm -hmm. the anatomy of the uterus. It's the uterus is tilted down. Okay. Um, so there are a lot of various conditions that you have to roll out with a physical exam okay. before you would say anything else. So, Gotcha. So it's pretty rare on the female side then to do anything surgical. Well, if there's a fibroid, you might would remove it. If there's an ovarian mm -hmm. cyst, you would remove it. So it, it, there's a huge amount of things that there could be with um, problems with. <laughs> right. We're covering so much right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's like adenomyosis. I mean, there's all these huge medical terms that are sure. um, hard probably right. for everyone to follow. But how, um, I, I, I'm guessing I'm wondering too, how often do you see patients with like, <laughs> I forgot the, I forgot the word now you use, but where, where it, comes mostly from what they're thinking or the trauma they have as a child or like that they come to you as a doctor can you fix my erectile dysfunction but really it's something else like it's stemming from yeah psychological definitely more multifactorial with women it's almost always has a psychologic component and a relational component mm -hmm. and a stress component because women are the caregivers, mm -hmm. you know, they're going through all the changes in life with their cycles, the endocrine system, all of the um, hormone signaling, mm -hmm. they go through breastfeeding, they go mm -hmm. through, you know, right after childbirth, there's no estrogen in the vagina. I think that's really God's way of trying to let you heal yeah. um, because it's, <laughs> it's super painful for women right after. And they don't even realize it a lot of times, like after childbirth, they're like, what just happened? Like they'll come in and be in 
years, you know? Um, so trying to work through those things, but women, you know, they carry a lot in their life. Like they have to take care of the kids. They have to, a lot of women work now, um, Mm -hmm. compared to probably years ago. So there's more stress, um, related to that. Women Mm -hmm. also take care of like, you know, elderly parents, things like that. So, um, there's definitely more of a psychological component that you have to really work with the patient on and suggest other therapies, um, try to dig in, you know, do you, is this problem with your relationship? Mm-hmm. Are you actually having pain because of a medical condition? You know, mm-hmm. so it gets a little bit, um, you know, a, it's a lot to have to, yeah. to work through at first. Sure. So. Yeah. Meredith on your side, um, how often are you seeing erectile dysfunction uh, being the result of pornography exposure? Hmm. You know, that is a question we should probably ask more about in the office visit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have read about that, that that's mm-hmm. becoming the number one cause. Yeah. Of, actually. Yeah. I think of course the guilt and the shame surrounding that yeah. makes it, Mm-hmm. Uh, really hard for people to, especially to their healthcare provider. But um, no, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. I, I mean, at least in our practice, anytime someone um, comes to us and says, you know, male or female and says that they, they aren't have you know, they're having a hard time in the bedroom for whatever reason. Um, and a lot of times, you know, lack of interest or lack of ability to perform, um, we will ask them about pornography use and a lot of times that that's at least part of the issue. Yeah. And so I was curious yeah. if you see that on your end, but it sounds like maybe it's not screened for as often in the medical realm. No, it certainly should be. Um, and going mm-hmm. back to what Kim was saying too, I mean, sex in general, uh, or it can be a very stressful thing for both yeah. men and women. And that's why the the psychological factors are so yeah. huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and for men, it's interesting because the number one way to, to know if their erectile dysfunction is more related to a psychogenic um, issue mm-hmm. is if they're able to still get a morning time erection or a nocturnal or during the nighttime erection, then we know that it's probably more psychological related. Their mm. ED. Wow. If they're not able to, um, or they fail to get that morning time time erection or or nighttime erection, then we know it's more of a, a vascular component or a blood flow component, or maybe it's more of a neurological component, and there's a nerve impulse. Um, wow. Interference that way. So. So that's a that's a big like interesting assessment. Yeah, that really yep. is. Yeah, so, that's a red flag. Yeah. One question I had even before I was like, okay, what questions do I have going in? I'm, I'm very curious about um, like hormonal, um, like hormone imbalances mm-hmm. and um, yeah. also diet. I know that even like, you know, if you have a huge vitamin D deficiency, then this affects this and this and this or mm-hmm. Like, so you probably have people do, I would assume like full labs. What do you look for when, when you like, yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. We're of course looking for any hormonal abnormalities, um, chemical abnormalities in all of their lab work. 
of course, testosterone is what everybody thinks of. You know, I, I have low libido or I have ED. I, I have got to have low testosterone, right? And um, that's just not always the case. So hmm. we want to look at your your thyroid hormone and um, the male sex hormones in general, of course. We want to look at your cholesterol and make sure that um, you don't have some underlying cardiovascular disease that could be causing the ED. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of chemical components that go into it. And if you're going to see a healthcare provider, they should look into great detail and just do a full gamut of testing. Because mm -hmm. um, it's much easier to rule out the root cause rather than just throw a medication and hope something sticks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just a question. How much does that generally cost? Say like, I just want to go in and check everything out. Mm -hmm. How much does that, I mean, I know that's like probably asking how much a car is, <laughs> but like, what is like the, the range that you see? So, depends on insurance. Um, it, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It varies on insurance and, you know, nowadays, most annual physicals, um, you can physical and get a large amount of lab work done, like your uh, lab or uh, your cholesterol and your lipid panel and your electrolytes, but more so the reproductive hormones and the sex hormones. I imagine those would be better covered at a reproductive health um, mm. facility. Okay. It was covered, yeah, at the urogyne or even um, that I worked at. Um, it was covered for that. So when the women would come in for their PAPs, they would go ahead and get like a CBC, CMP, um, which is a blood mm. count and all of the sodium, potassium, things like that. Okay. Um, but um, thyroid every single year is generally covered by insurance. So you can okay. get that checked because um, that can cause a lot of mm -hmm. problems, um, a lot of fatigue sure. issues. Um, yeah. So there's, uh, I would always check annually whenever I had a women on hormone therapy, I would check their estrogen, progesterone, um, testosterone is used more in women postmenopausal, not premenopausal. Okay. Um, so premenopausal women have more over the counter therapies, or there are a couple of prescription medicines that will actually help, um, with low desire. Um, so, okay. One of them is an injectable, actually. It's similar really? to the um, male. It just came out last year um, and it has, it's very well tolerated. It's a little um, needle injection that women can do 45 minutes before sexual activity. Okay. Um, it's called um, Brimlanotide, I think. Um, I don't, we call it BMT. Okay. Um, but I'm like, um, Brimlanotide, yes. Um, so um, that it's injected in the abdomen or thigh. Um, mm -hmm. And then 45 minutes prior to sexual activity. Um, it has very little side effects, a little bit of a headache, a little nausea, flushing are really the main things that women complain of. So, um, but it helps with arousal, their lubrication, mm -hmm. um, orgasm, those kind of things. And um, there's another medication that's just oral you can take every day um, that helps with desire as well. So um, some women would prefer to take the oral one and then some are like, eh, I'll just do it, you know, mm -hmm. um, as the need arises. Um, it's only, yeah. you can only use it like eight times in a month. So, okay. but that's kind of normal for a lot of patients, you know, twice a week intercourse is mm -hmm. kind of a norm. Um, 
So it seems to work for them with that. So do you ever have couples or, or patients just ask you straight up, like, how often should I be having sex? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, more so like, hey, they're, they have discrepant levels of desire. And mm-hmm. so they're like, my partner really wants to have sex this many times and I'm just not really into that, you, you know, help me out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, average, yes, twice a week, um, that we hear, but it really is dependent upon the mm. couple. So I would not let that be a problem. Um, yeah. To stick with like you, you work it out between each other, you know, um, timing, you know, other stressors, Um, shift schedules, things like that Mm. totally play into it. So yeah, totally. That makes sense. Are there any um, foods that either of you recommend to patients um, to just help with general health, therefore helping with sexual health? Not necessarily. That would be way too easy. Of course, a male standpoint, we always recommend healthy diet exercise, and that's pretty much as far as we go with that. Mm. Um, Even having, you know, not eating specific foods or having a specific diet or exercising X amount per week, there's no specific recommendation. But we do know that maintaining an overall healthy diet and a regular exercise regimen that will actually boost your body's endogenous production or its own production of testosterone, okay. which in itself can help maintain a libido and the libido. Okay. So no specific diet. <laughs> That's good to know though. So ha- eat healthily if you want a better chance at boosting your libido. Exactly. Right. Heart, heart healthy, really diabetes, heart disease, um, vascular disease, those all contribute to low libido. So, mm-hmm. um, I would definitely work on a heart healthy diet. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and then that's going to help, um, cause you have the decline in health over time anyways. And so that's going to just prolong maybe sexual function later in life yeah. as well. That's so good. I think these, that like little tips like that are so helpful because like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. It is pretty much a heart, mm-hmm. especially for a man, right? Because it's blood flow. Mm-hmm. If my blood's not flowing, then yeah. <laughs> then we have problems, of course. Right. So that's probably why you're talking about cholesterol because then it restricts blood flow, right? And then exactly. the medications, the medications that are mm. used cause sexual dysfunction, the antihypertensive uh, yep. and the cholesterol lowering medications, all of that. So you're compounding the problem. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Can can each of you walk us through a success story without identifying information of the patient, um, but maybe just like general like um, a common something that you see all the that's time. Common, but yeah, maybe a general description of what the problem was, how you treated them, and then the results, what you saw. So we'll start uh, if you want. We'll start with Meredith, and then we'll go to Kim. That sounds good. So um, I mentioned at the beginning that we cancer patients um, also, a lot of prostate cancer patients. So when I'm kind of getting a little bit ahead of myself and not a lot of the listeners have probably had their plate out, but um, they have in this situation with the prostate being removed, 
that basically removes the semen making equipment. It makes erectile function after the surgery extraordinarily difficult. So mm. um, we see a lot of times gentlemen had a great sex life um, prior to surgery and then, or even without having the surgery, and then they come in for operative appointment even a year after surgery and they can't achieve an erection, much mm-hmm. less maintain one. Mm-hmm. So it causes a lot of stress in the marriage between the patient and wife. Um, so and just to clarify, Meredith, starting, for, for people who might be confused, when when a patient yeah. has prostate cancer and then they get their mm-hmm. prostate removed, they're not getting their entire penis removed. Is that right? Correct. Correct. It's just the prostate and some seminocycles, nearby structures, but Mm -hmm. penis, scrotum, that is all intact. Okay. Mm. Everything looks the same from the outside. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so you Um, see the issues with erectile dysfunction post-op, even a year out. Absolutely. Yeah. It can even take up to two years sometimes. So we make it a priority to start that erectile rehabilitation immediately after surgery and start with a um, everyday low dose of Cialis just to help that blood flow to the pelvis. Then we add on a higher dose of it to use two or three times a week to hopefully help promote even more blood flow. Um, And the success stories with that when you start early after surgery is tremendous. Mm. I think that directly overflow or uh, it directly is related to the men who haven't had surgery and they come in and, you know, maybe they've had um, traumatic relationships in the past and mm. now they're married and they're finding intimacy with their wife extremely difficult, or mm. maybe the performance anxiety is directly causing their erectile dysfunction. And, you know, even though the desire is there and the need for intimacy is there, maybe just that weak pill of Cialis or maybe an injection every now and then gives them the rest of that confidence to um, live a really great sex life and a meaningful and fulfilling one. Mm, That's Mm. awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. How about for you, Kim? What's a success story that that you've encountered? Um, I would say we have a lot of success stories just because we have patients who come back year after year and they're like, wow, I'm able to have intercourse now because you put me on this therapy, you know? So Mm -hmm. um, uh, sometimes, you know, if we just remove the fibroids, all of a sudden they're like, I'm cured. Like it's no Mm. longer painful or Mm. maybe they've, they have a loss of estrogen and you give them some estrogen back, um, via, um, a vaginal estrogen therapy. Like, um, you can use a little cream twice a week and it actually brings back the elasticity, um, to the vagina to where they're not in so much pain and crying for when they're going to have intercourse, you know, and, um, I've used that actually on breastfeeding patients, um, Mm -hmm. and also postmenopausal women. So it's a very similar situation. So Mm -hmm. sometimes, um, I'm like, I hate to tell you this, but this might be what happens to you in a few years, you know, (laughs) once you hit menopause, so at least you're kind of prepared. Now you know what to expect. (laughs) So, um, 
But um, there are a couple of other therapies. There's one called Thermiva that I used a lot in the office, and it's like a heat wand. Okay. Um, we used it on patients, um, a particular patient who had had pelvic radiation. And so everything um, was kind of frozen um, in the pelvis. Obviously, they didn't want the cells to be regrowing with cancer. Um, and so we used vaginal um, suppositories that didn't have estrogen in them. There are some over-the-counter ones that you can use. Um, and then there's a heat wand that you can use. Um, they come into the office once a month for three months. And the therapy is 20, 30 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, as a practitioner, would use that heat wand um, to try to help with the tissues. So it's like a radio mm-hmm. frequency. They have, they have one called Mona Lisa as well. There's a few of them out there, but it's kind mm-hmm. of a vaginal rejuvenation therapy. So, um, I would have patients who would do that. And after the third session, they're like, wow, this is so much better. Um, wow. it doesn't hurt as much. Oh my so goodness. it's kind of causing almost thermal injury. So then it brings in more blood flow and elasticity and the collagen starts working again. So it creates an issue. Your body's like, Oh, I need to fix that and brings all the extra blood flow to that area. And the vagina. Um, so I've used that, you know, and then they'll do a touch up once a year. Um, so there are a lot of therapies. Yeah. It sounds like it. Wow. Yeah. That, that women can use, um, to, to help them, you know, with, issues that they're yes. having. Um, and you have found great success with many of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, question for you, Kim. So uh, I'll get clients oftentimes who are, you mentioned breastfeeding and it, it reminded me of clients who I get who will, um, you know, they'll, they'll have their baby and then you have that six week recommendation of don't have sex, you know, for six weeks. And then if they hit that six week mark, a lot of shame and guilt comes over them if they're still not ready to have sex what would you say to them from the medical perspective? So definitely talk to your partner. That's mm-hmm. number one. Um, because hopefully you're in a great relationship where they care about you as well and are putting your needs yes. ahead of um, their needs, you know, so you want to both work together on that and have honest conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I usually have patients on a birth control that does not have estrogen in it um, because it lowers milk supply. And so if okay. they're breastfeeding, I wouldn't want them to be on that, but I will supplement with some vaginal estrogen like I would with a postmenopausal woman so that it helps um, with lubrication and the elasticity and all mm-hmm. that. So it's not so painful. Nice. And then I would also say like, kind of work it out with your partner. I mean, you're probably both exhausted. Um, <laughs> especially if you have a child up in the middle of the night, you know, that's one of the main reasons for low libido. Um, (laughs) Yes. So um, I think just talking through all of that and, you know, getting more comfortable. um, Sometimes you may not have intercourse, actual vaginal penile intercourse, but maybe you may be more interested in um, something else, you mm-hmm. know, prior to that. So maybe like a foreplay type thing yep. um, to give your body a little more time to heal. Yep. So I think it's individualized though. Um, occasionally people will have to go to therapy if it's been months. I mean, I've, I've heard of people waiting more than a year and um, that can also have a huge toll on the relationship, mm-hmm. you know? Um, totally. So 
certainly I think it's something you would have to work through yeah. amongst yourselves and maybe with a therapist. Yeah. Hmm. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, we've learned so much. Um, I think what's really helpful for me too is, is knowing that it's not just like, cause I, I kind of go, I, I of course revert to, well, it's in your, it's, it's mind, you know, let's work on the mind. Let's work on the anxiety that you have. Let's work on the stress. But for some people, it may not be just that. Right. For yep. some people, it may be like you're saying, chemical imbalances, a thyroid issue, a, you know, like you need to check your hormones, you need to check yeah. your, your blood. Are you, you know, like all mm-hmm. this stuff goes in because I think it all comes back to we're holistic beings. Mm-hmm. We are mind, but we are also body. Yeah. And we can't, we can't just focus on one and exclude the other because you're doing an injustice to yourself and probably get yourself frustrated because you might miss the, the, the solution either side. We yeah. can't just focus on one. Well, and kind of on that note, um, and you guys probably get this um, challenge thrown at you in your career as a believer, um, but you have folks who are quick to, you know, get their insulin for diabetes or get their chemo for cancer. But then when they hear about medical interventions to help with their sexual health, um, they shut it down or they think it's non-spiritual. I mean, even probably people listening to this podcast are like, you would do what? Like, how do you, how do you respond to folks who challenge you in your, um, your treatment options or even just in your career to help people with their sexual health? I think the more we talk about it and make people feel comfortable with it, hopefully the less taboo it will be and the, the less, you know, non-religious it will be. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think about to Laura Brotherson and your, I think, uh, episode 23 or something, but (laughs) she talked about how, um, how, what a blessing sex is in marriage yeah. and feeling confident in a, um, with intimacy in your marriage. Mm-hmm. I think that directly coincides with making sure that you're satisfied with your erectile function and you're satisfied mm-hmm. with your sexual function overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Yeah. How about for you, Kim? What do you, what do you share with people when you have that uh, challenge? I think I try to normalize it because I think that people think that they're like the only person who doesn't have this wonderful sex life and it's not like Hollywood and all this stuff. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. actually, I see this all the time and it is totally normal. You know, I mean, urinary tract infections are so common in women. Like, yes, that's going to cause problems. You're going to be hurting if you don't get this taken care of, you know? Um, So, I try to normalize it. And then I also try to say, you know, um, does God, do you think that God wants you to have pleasure with your partner? Because there are a lot of instances in the Bible, even Song of Solomon, um, it talks a lot about, um, you know, this between a man and a woman. And so I try to normalize and try to make them feel comfortable and just say, I don't think that the Lord would want you to be suffering, to be crying through this process. Sex is a gift from God um, between a man and a woman. And it's a beautiful thing. It's not something just for procreation. And um, so I do, I don't think that the Lord looks badly on you for trying to 
preserve this part of your relationship with your spouse. Amen and amen. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's so good. Well, you guys have been a wealth of information and I think inspiration too for a lot of people who just needed hope in this area. Um, So real quick, just so it's clear for folks who have um, like a primary care provider and they haven't been seeing any specialists or maybe even an OB, maybe they don't have kids or they just haven't you know, gone to anyone other than their primary care um, and they want to get something checked out that you mentioned today, um, who would they talk to or ask their primary care about in terms of a referral? So definitely gynecologist is first line. Okay. Um, and then sexual health centers. There are certain states that actually have sexual health centers. I know there are several in California. Um, I have, I've actually gone to, um, a couple of conferences underneath of two different, um, doctors. One is Brooke fought and one is, um, Susan Kellogg spat. They're both nurse practitioners. They both got their doctorates. They're both professors. They both, um, have sexual centers and they do telemedicine visits. So it may be something that if you've ruled out maybe organic causes or um, things going on, you know, with like a pelvic exam with Mm -hmm. your gynecologist, but you're like, I really think I actually have one of these disorders, like an arousal or desire Mm -hmm. um, kind of issue. You could do a telemedicine visit, um, especially with COVID right now. Um, That's a little bit, um, yeah. more normal, I think. So nice. Good to know. Any, anything you would add to that Meredith, as far as who to talk to on the man side? Yeah. On the male side of things, certainly a urologist, um, URO, not an E-U-R-O, um, <laughs> okay. urologist is going to um, be able to tell you all things, uh, male sexual dysfunction related. Okay. However, bef- even before any of that, if you're seeing a primary care provider, definitely make sure all of all or any chronic conditions are really well controlled. Mm. Um, that way we can rule out the underlying cause too. And honestly, a, a urologist could get you to the right place as far as seeing any other um, specialist to treat any of those too. Perfect. Right on. Wow. This has been really helpful. Yes. What kinds of uh, reading or recommended resources do you guys have for folks that we can include in the show notes? I don't have a ton of reading resources, to be honest, because it depends on, there's such a variety of issues. You had a medical textbook, you're like, here, read this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, But there are articles, there's, um, it's called Ishwish, it's like a sexual um, dysfunction society, and they have a lot of articles about like hypoactive sexual desire, dysfunction, orders, okay. you know, things like that. So you could certainly just do a, a quick Google search. Um, but I think you would have to figure out what the issue is first and okay. then, you know, yeah. maybe research it a little further after that. Okay. Yeah. And Meredith, how about from your end, any, any other recommended resources or places people can go to find out more? Yeah, I would agree with Kim um, about, you know, it being a stack of textbooks that would be most reliable. But um, certainly, you know, there's, um, it's usually 
mostly by access to medical professionals, but up to date um, is always a great up to date application or website that you can use to um, look up current recommendations on all things treatment, evaluation of dysfunction. Um, also, of course, going to, you know, there's an American Urological Association. They always update their website as far as treatment options and resources and things like that. Okay. Self-help wise and, uh, and um, like easier reads is probably going to be given by a um, sex therapist. They'll mm-hmm. probably have a lot more resources as far as that goes. Okay. Awesome. Great. Well, we'll put those three, you know, general recommendations that you guys gave in the show notes. Um, and then people can go from there to find what they're specifically looking for. Perfect. All right. Well, we are closing up our podcast. And at the end of our podcast, we uh, we like to do what we call the Dear Young Married Couple Letter. And um, before we do, if you're listening to this right now and you're enjoying what you're listening to, uh, if you would drop a review and a star rating um, into Apple Podcasts, that would be awesome. It helps it reach many, many more couples. All right. So on to our dear young married couple letter. Um, Rewinding back to the first few years of marriage or even just in your practice too, um, thinking about the advice that you wish you would have received or advice you wish you would have given in the early years of your practice and then fill in the blank, dear young married couple. So we'll start with you, Kim, and then we'll go to you, Meredith. So dear young married couple, um, the person that you marry will not be the same version of themselves over the years. Life is going to change. You're going to have ups and downs. You'll have career changes, possibly children. You'll have stressors. You'll have surgeries. You'll have losses and gains. So I think just growing together because Mm -hmm. you're both, you both should be growing as a person individually, but Mm -hmm. also growing together is really important and learning to adapt, um, to one another and, um, support one another throughout all of those life changes. So So good. good. (laughs) (laughs) How about for you, Meredith? Yeah. So dear young married couple, learn to move on. Mm. It's easy to bring habitual characteristics of independence and stubbornness into a marriage that you've been used to for so long so during a disagreement or an argument it's important to have your emotions respected be heard listen um, and then work it out and move on i think dwelling on an argument or stewing on something or holding grudges only makes it harder to truly connect um and a wise person once said once said that no one wins or yeah no one wins arguments um you both win or you both lose so i loved that that's good that's good i like that a lot true we can only get that yes oh so good well thank you guys kim and meredith you guys have been so helpful and I know that this is going to probably help a lot of people that feel very hopeless and can't talk to anybody about it Yes. or feel very shameful. So hopefully mm-hmm. they can get a little courage to go and um, get themselves checked and feel yes. comfortable going to a doctor. 
Yes. And if you guys do want to get in contact with Kim or Meredith, you can email them. They've both given permission um, for you to email them and we'll include their email addresses in the show notes. So thanks so much, ladies. You're awesome. Thank you. You guys are wonderful. Thank you. All right, friends. We really hope that you got a ton out of today's conversation. And if you want help, if you want personal guidance with individual counseling or couples counseling, or even help with you as a couple reaching the goals you have, just reach out. Give us a call at 916-678-1797 or shoot us an email at hello at dearyoungmarriedcouple.com. No matter where you are in the world or in your marriage, we can set up a counseling session with you and we can work toward progress. We also post marriage advice regularly on our Instagram, which is at Dear Young Married Couple. And we'd love for you to join us in conversation there. All right. See you next week.